Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach, California. Whether you are listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. All right, how many of you are college football fans? You have a team. All right. And so I assume that you probably watched your team play yesterday. And here's the question. Was there ever a moment of desperation as you watched your team? You felt kind of desperate? Yeah, I was watching mine, and unfortunately, I felt desperate as the ending gun of the game went off. And that's always a bad feeling, to be desperate at that point, because it's over. Uh, But I do seriously want to ask you the question, have you ever felt desperate? And uh, one of the most acute memories I ever have of feeling that way is when our girls were young, and Kate is our older and Nikki is our younger, And uh, Nikki was able to have pacifiers, and Kate, we had broken from pacifiers because she was a little bit older. Uh, But once Nikki started having them, the binkies in our house, Kate felt like she was entitled to have binkies. And so we had to break her all over again, and she hated that. She thought it was so unfair that her little sister got to have them. One day, Saturday morning, uh, after she was sort of brooding about that, Kate disappeared from our house. And we lived in a cul-de-sac, and we thought at first, well, she's in the backyard. We looked in the backyard. No. Well, maybe she's out in the front. No, we didn't see her. Maybe she's over at the neighbor's. We went over there. She wasn't there. And now, if you're a parent and you've ever lost your child, you start to understand the feelings we were feeling. So we started sort of running around. We went to all the neighbor's house and asked all of them if they'd seen Kate. None of them had seen Kate. Uh, We started sort of frantically searching again the backyard, looking throughout the whole house, making sure, yelling for Kate. And then I remember uh, we had neighbors or sort of friends that lived about three uh, streets over, but it was on a busy street. And I thought, well, maybe she went over there. And she was little. She was like three years old. And I remember running over there. And at that point, I felt about as desperate as I can remember ever feeling. And I got back. She wasn't there. I got back. We were about to call the police. We decided to look through the house one more time. We looked under Nikki's crib, and there was Kate, sound asleep with four pacifiers in her mouth. (laughs) She had had a binky overdose, and there she was. Uh, But anyway, that was one of the most desperate feelings I've ever had. And fortunately for me, it was remedied pretty quickly. But for some people, it sort of goes on. And for some of you, maybe as I ask you the question, have you ever felt desperate? You think back to maybe a divorce you went through and you felt very desperate during that time. Or maybe it was when you were raising your children and they hit a certain age and they started to push against you. They started to rebel. And you really started to get scared for the decisions they were making and, and sort of wondering where that would go. For some of you, maybe it was one day you were called into work and they, in a surprise, let you go. You lost your job and you thought, I have no way to make money. I mean, this is my only thing. And you felt kind of that thing inside of being desperate. Uh, For some of us, it's when we go to a doctor and a doctor tells us something that totally hits us blindside and we walk out and we're numb and we're wondering, oh my gosh, I feel totally desperate at this point. That is actually an important feeling to remember when it comes to the topic we're talking about today. Because there are people who are actually chronically desperate. A single mom that can't take care of her kids, who cannot get food for her children, 
is chronically desperate. A family that's living in their car is chronically desperate. A kid who's 18 and he's out on the street and he doesn't know where he's going to sleep, there's something desperate that just goes on and on. An addict that's lost everything and is kind of in a position, uh, I, I don't know that I can go any lower than I've gone right now. The Bible talks about people that are chronically desperate. And the words, just so that you know, when you're reading the Bible, if you ever see the word orphan, orphan equates to chronically desperate in that culture. Widow, chronically desperate. Foreigner, chronically desperate. Prisoner, chronically desperate. And it may or may not surprise you to know that when God talks to the people that call themselves Christians, that call themselves Christ followers, that are God-fearers. He says, it is essential that you pay attention to those that are chronically desperate. In fact, this is so interesting because if you were to ask God, who is it, God, that you especially love? And some of you are going to say, theologically, I know he doesn't especially love anyone. He loves everyone. But if you were just to read the Bible on the surface, if you were just to sort of look it on at face value, there would be an answer. And the answer is God especially loves those who are chronically desperate. He says in Psalm 68, which is sort of an introduction to himself, he gives himself, God gives himself some titles in Psalm 68. And so after he's talked about the Lord of Lord and the Lord of hosts and some of the things that we expect, he says these words. He says, I am God, and I am a father to the fatherless. I am a defender of widows. I set the lonely in families. In fact, in Hebrews uh, chapter 13, uh, chapter 4, Jesus goes so far as to say, listen, I am a high priest that can sympathize with everyone who's chronically desperate, sympathize with everyone in their weakness. And you imagine God did everything. He even came to earth so that he could experience and relate to people that are chronically desperate. And then maybe the most staggering statement of all Jesus makes in Matthew 25, where he's talking about the end times, and he says, I relate so much with those that are chronically desperate that when you do a favor for them, when you help them out in some way, when you give them a cup of water or you give them some food or some clothing or you give them shelter, you are actually doing it for me. That's how much I relate to those that are chronically desperate. So with all that as background, it may not surprise you to read what we read in James chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, we're going to sort of camp in James chapter 1. If you don't, we we are going to put it up on the screen But it probably is not surprising with that background that the Bible tells us that we are to have a certain position, we are to take a certain action when it comes to those who are chronically desperate. And it's James 1, verse 27. And we'll bring this up on the screen. Why don't you just read it with me? We'll read this together. And this is sort of the text that we're going to stay in. We're going to move around, but you can just lock in here if you like. It says this, read it with me. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for the orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. 
Now, if you've been with us, you know that we're in this series called Why Jesus Hates Religion. And people have always sort of wondered, well, didn't he start one? And yes, Christianity is a religion. But it's very clear that Jesus did not come to start a religion. And we've used religion in a very negative way if you've been here throughout the series. This is the only place in the New Testament where religion is given a positive slant, where it's said in a positive way. And it's interesting because it connects directly to what kind of an action? Giving, caring, helping those who are desperately in need. And Jesus says, uh, or James rather says here, now that is pure and undefiled religion. That is good religion when you help those who are in need. But now I want to read to you another thing that's going to mess us up. Because just when we say, okay, finally there's an action we can take that's going to win us merit with God. Finally there's an action we can take where if we really want to prove to God how much we love him and win a little more of his love, now I know what it is. It's to help the orphans and the widows. That's the way. That's the way of religion. That's what I feel comfortable with. But now uh, I want to turn your attention back to a scene that happens in Matthew chapter 6. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. We'll bring it up on the screen, but I'm just going to tell you what happens. is Jesus is standing in the courtyard in uh, Jerusalem for the temple, and he's watching religious leaders come in. And you know what they're doing? They are giving to the poor. And you would say, wow, well, at least they got that right. I mean, maybe they got a lot of things wrong, but at least they got that right. And it says that they would come in and with sort of pomp and circumstance, in fact, they say sounding trumpets, which was probably uh, just a saying at the time. They probably weren't literally playing a trumpet. But they would come in and they make sort of a spectacle of the fact that they were giving alms to the poor. They were helping the orphan and the widows and the foreigners. They were helping those who were chronically desperate. And Jesus looks at it And his evaluation is, no good. No good. God is not pleased with what you're doing. And it sort of throws up now this question of, well, so what's the deal? Are we supposed to help the needy? Or does Jesus say, no, I don't want you to help the needy? James is telling us it's pure religion. Jesus looks at people that are doing it and says, no good. And here's, I think, the lesson for us, is it is not enough for us to just help the needy. Our attitude makes the whole difference. Our attitude of why we do it makes the whole difference. And in fact, the reason that Jesus is so hard on the religious leaders at this point is because he would say to them, if there's anyone that knows that attitude's important, you should know it. You are masters of the law of Moses. You know what Moses said when he came down from Mount Sinai with the laws. If anyone knows it in all of Jerusalem, in all of Judea, it's our religious leaders. I mean, you've memorized it. And yet, when you practice uh, what you would think is great religion of helping the needy, your attitude is all messed up. How could that be? How could that be when the attitude is actually pressed into the law? All right, so now I want us to go back to the law. And again, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn over there, because I want to look at a couple of things here. Uh, We go to Deuteronomy chapter 24. 
And in Deuteronomy chapter 24, just to give you sort of the fill-in, this is Moses giving the law uh, after he's come down from Mount Sinai, actually, and this is the second telling of the law, so this is a little bit later, but he's just rehearsing the law with them. He's going through the law, and this part relates especially to helping those in need. Okay, so in Deuteronomy chapter 24, starting in verse 19, it says these words. I'll read it. It says, When you are harvesting your crops and forget to bring in a bundle of grain from your field, don't go back to get it. Leave it for, for the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows, those who are chronically desperate. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. When you beat the olives from your olive trees, don't go over the boughs twice. Leave the remaining olives for the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows. When you gather the grapes in your vineyard, don't glean the vines after they are picked. Leave the remaining grapes for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. Remember, remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. That is why I give you this command. And what is established during the giving of the law is this principle of gleaning, okay? And uh, I'm making up that term. I don't know that it's called a principle of gleaning. Maybe it is. I don't know. But let's call it a principle of gleaning because this is so important. If, we, if you want to help people who are in need, you need to remember the principles that we learn from gleaning from this passage. And here are three things that we learn from the principle of gleaning. Here's the first one. This is so important. Is our attitude really makes a difference. And that's the reason that the closing of Deuteronomy 24, what we just read, it ends by saying, what condition were they in when they were in Egypt? What were they? They were slaves. And you know, this is only a generation removed. There are some people in the crowd that remember when they were slaves in Egypt. And just, you know, none of us have probably been a slave. That is a bad condition to be in. I mean, that is being chronically, you are chronically desperate when you're a slave. And so when God gave the law, he said, I want you to remember when you get to your land and things start to get better and you start to have your own stuff and you're not chronically desperate anymore, which is good. It's good not to be chronically desperate. I want you to always remember you were desperate once. You were in terrible shape. And the only reason you're not desperate is because me, as God, came and rescued you. I took you out of that condition. In my mercy, when you were a slave, I made you a child. I gave you a land. I made you a people. You got an identity. You didn't earn any of it. I just gave it to you. I saw you in your desperation, and I came, and it pleased me to rescue you in this way. And what God says is, don't ever forget that. Don't ever think that you're better than somebody else because you're not desperate and they are. It is so easy for us to do it. It's so easy for us to see somebody who's standing by the side of the road and says, you know, I'll work for food or, you know, you know spare a quarter or somebody comes up and sort of panhandles. And, you know, you're, you, maybe you're moved a little bit, but you sort of think, kind of a loser. I mean, if they would just work. You know, why do they do that? 
mean, why can't they just kind of do what I do? Sometimes life is hard and I just work harder and I figure it out. And they don't do that. Or you see people that are, or you hear about people that are in gangs, and why do they make that decision? That's so dumb. Why would they do that? That's so stupid. I would never do that. I'd never go to that place. Or maybe you see sort of a single parent, and they've gone through a nasty divorce, and you think, you know, I worked through my problems in marriage. You know, I, I don't put myself in that position. And God comes to you and says, hey, hold on, pal. You're not as great as you think you are. If it wasn't for my grace, you'd be in the exact same position. Don't ever forget that you're you're inches away from desperation. If I was to pull back my grace, you'd be desperate. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever think you're better than. Another thing we tend to do is separate ourselves from the people that make us feel uncomfortable and people that are desperately, uh, sort of chronically desperate, make us feel uncomfortable. I mean, they always have needs. <laughs> you know, they always need stuff from us. And we sort of like, hey, you know, I got to get some space here. I don't want to live there. You know, I, I don't want to live in a place where there's gangs and problems and things like that. I'm going to live, you know, in Woodbridge. And Woodbridge is so great because, you know, you have to be pretty and be in Woodbridge. You know, you've got to pick up after your dog in Woodbridge. You know, it's the it's the Stepford community. It's so beautiful there. You know, it's where I live. So just, just so you know, all right? So anyway, I'm poking fun at me. Uh, but we separate ourselves out. And God says, you're so much missing my heart in what's going on here. So the first thing that he says is, don't ever forget that you're desperate. That's the first principle of gleaning. Here's the second thing. Uh, he says, um, as far as uh, sort of the activity that we're to take, they gave sort of this gleaning principle. And in the gleaning principle, it's kind of a cool thing. They said, all right, you've got a field. I want you to leave the edges of your field. We didn't read this part, but leave the edges of your field ungleaned or unharvested so that people can come by and they can get stuff from you. And, and it sort of, you know, it totally works against capitalism because capitalism would see Say, you know, magnify every advantage you have, you know, leverage all of the stuff that you have, bring it all in. And here God says, no, I don't want you to. I want you to leave the edges. Now the question is, you know, so how big are the edges? Well, they're as big as your generosity can handle. You make the edges as big, you say, well, I'll take this because I need this for myself. I'm going to leave the edges open for people who are in need. And God said, I need you to live that way. It's not all about you. I need you to leave the edges. There needs to be margin. You can't live on everything that you could take. I want you to leave some for others. It's really important. And then finally, and this is the coolest thing, he said, when that happens, there's a very interesting thing that happens because when we give and we help the poor, there's, there's sort of a, a self-righteousness feeling that we can have, sort of a, oh, I'm kind of cool, kind of reaching out. You know, I'm kind of giving. And the way that God set it up with a gleaning is nobody could ever say that. Not really. Because when you don't glean all of your field, you recognize, of course, that everything that's in the field, God gave to you. And all God's saying is, I don't want you to take it all for yourself. And so instead of thinking that you're giving to the poor, you realize, no, God's giving to the poor. I'm just giving him a chance. I'm just leaving it open so that God is giving to the poor. I'm giving God his due in the principle of gleaning. And furthermore, I'm allowing those who are desperate to have dignity. 
I don't know if you've ever felt pitied before. You've gone through a hard time, and somebody came into your life, and they said they were helping you, but they were pitying you. And there's nothing worse than having somebody feel pity for you. If you've ever been there, you're like, ah, just get away from me. I don't want your help if you're going to pity me. And the way that God set it up is he said, there will be no pity here. You will work for what you're going to get. You're going to do your part. We're just going to make sure you have a part to play. So in the principle of gleaning, it's such a great thing. It builds in that I can't feel better than the people that I'm helping. It means I need to connect with the people that are are in need. I can't just push them off or sort of help them from a distance. I've got to invite them onto my land. And finally, I give God his due, and I give those in need their dignity. And this is exactly how God set it up. He said, listen, I want you to help those in need, but I want you to do it a certain way. I want you to do it in humility. And I want you to do it in relationship. And I want you uh, to do it in such a way that God gets the honor and the people you're helping are actually part of the solution. That's what I want. That's how I want it to set up. And that's the reason that Jesus is so hard on the religious leaders in Matthew 6. They have violated every one of those principles. They think they're better than, they've separated themselves away, they are taking credit, the people that are being helped are being pitied, and Jesus says, don't you understand, that's not the way that it works. And if you knew the law, you'd know that. And what happens is we come back then, I wanted us to finish in the passage that we started in, in in James chapter 1. So in James chapter 1, before we get back to verse 27, which is where we want to land, Let me just, or let's read together a verse or a passage that actually sets up James 1.27. In fact, this is the foundational passage for the whole book of James. Because James, if you've ever read that book, it's sort of a book of doing a lot of good things, a lot of good works. Well, the whole foundation of the book is built in these verses. James 1, verses 16 through 18. Uh, let's, Let's read this together. It says... Don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word, and we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. And uh, we could talk a lot about this, and I don't want to right now, but there is clearly an emphasis here. And it is, you were in a place one time where you needed God to intervene in your life. And he is the giver of all good gifts. If there is anything good in your life, he has given it to you. And he's given it to you consistently. There are no shifting shadows. It's not like he's good one day and he's sort of off doing his own thing the other day or he gets angry with you and so he whacks you one day. No, he is consistent. He is always, you may not always recognize it as good, but from his standpoint, good gifts come your way all the time. And then James highlights it by saying this, furthermore, he adopted you because you were an orphan. You were desperate, and you probably didn't even know it, and he adopted you. He brought you into his family. You are his special possession. First fruit is literally what that means. You are the first 
the most honored. He brought you into his family. And so everything that James says after that, where he's telling us to do things, is based on that foundation. You do good not because you're just a good person. You do good because you're responding to how good God has been to you. He was so good to you. And so we go to James 1.27, and it says, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for the orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. And let me just tell you something cool that there's no way you could know just by reading it in English. That word for religion is a unique word in the Greek. In fact, it is only used uh, in about two or three places. And whereas religion very often just means the external expression of doing something, this word actually means in response to something God has done for you genuinely in your life, something, someplace he's connected with you, your response is religion. Your response is this act of generosity or of caring or of reaching out or of loving. You never go away thinking, I'm pretty cool because I did this. No, you're just responding to something amazing God has done in your life. That is the word for religion here. That's why it's called pure and genuine because it comes out of a response of what God has done for you. And what James is telling us here is when you realize what God has done for you and how he saved you, then for you to move toward somebody else who's in need, who's desperate, is as natural as breathing. Of course I'd do that. Of course I'd do that. After what he's done for me. A few years ago, I was driving through San Clemente my dad used to live down there, and it was raining, and I came up, and there was an accident up in front of me on the Pacific Coast Highway. And so uh, I stopped the car, and then I saw that there were people laying in the street. So I pulled over, and it was right, the accident had just happened. And I walked around and came to where, what had happened, and apparently what had happened is uh, a woman driving a Mercedes had struck two pedestrians. And as I looked, it was a mother and her little boy and they were Hispanic. And they were conscious, but they were laying on the ground, and they were speaking Spanish. And I don't know this for sure, but there's probably a good chance that they were illegal immigrants. I mean, lots of that down in that area of the county. And they were crossing the road, and they got hit by a car, and they were laying on the pavement. And the mother and the son were yards apart from each other. People were starting to come and help them. And I just thought to myself, what would it be like to be that little boy in a foreign country, now not even know, knowing probably if his mom is alive or not? And he's lying on the cold pavement, and everybody that comes up to him speaks a language he can't understand. And you know what occurred to me? Is I was born in Los Angeles. If I had been born 150, 200 miles south, just as happenstance would have it. That could have been my story, right? That could have been your story. I mean, the fact that you happen to be born in the United States rather than in Mexico 
you had very little to do with that. You didn't earn that. It's not because you're educated. It's not because, you know, you worked really hard to get it or whatever, because you're a good person. No, we were just born here. And what I realize is it's only because of God's grace that I'm not that little boy laying in the street. And it's only because of God's grace that you're not. And so God comes to us and he says, listen, I have given you grace and blessing. And you must extend it to those who are desperately in need. That's the role you've got. That's what you get to play. That's the opportunity that you have. And so we as a church want to take that seriously. And listen, folks, as we're getting Huntington Beach, Mountain Valley, as we're getting our community together, there's a real basic question we have to answer when it comes to this issue. Are we going to be the church that practices the principle of gleaning? Are we going to be the church that does not think we're better than when we come to those who are in need? Are we going to be the church that develops relationships with those who maybe make us feel a little uncomfortable at times? Are we going to do things so that God is honored and the people we're helping continue to have their dignity? Is that going to be our church? Because I'm telling you, that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. That's the kind of church you want to be a part of. That's the kind of church that we get to be together. And it all comes down to asking the question, are you going to be that kind of person? Because that's really all the church is. It's just a bunch of us together, right? Those of us that are calling Jesus our Lord and Savior and doing life together. So it all comes down to the question of you. Turn your attention to the screens, and we'll see one person who answered that question. I was two years into my marriage and still um, had no desire yet to have kids, which would have been fine if it were just me, but um, my husband desperately wanted to have kids. My biggest fear about having children was um, just the control factor, the fact that um, there was bound to be chaos and there were bound to be um, a lot of changes and a lot less control of my life and my household and and my image and my job, all those things I, that I feel like I have control over now um, would be changed. My husband and I went to Haiti in March of this year and just fell in love with the children there. And we were really looking for a way to serve children locally. And our first thought was safe families. We had heard about the program and we knew that they keep kids out of the foster care system. Um, families, Parents, usually single parents, uh, going through any kind of crisis can place their children with another family for however long they need to. Her mom was in a jail for a year where you can have your family as long as they're two years and under. And as she was getting out, she knew that there was a warrant out for her arrest and that she would have to go to prison, basically, a, a real jail where you couldn't have your children. And um, the thought that 
this mom had no one else to call, no other friends, no other family who she felt comfortable giving her children to, I think we were picturing a maladjusted child who had been through a whole lot. But this kid, you could tell her mom was a really good mom because she was so well-adjusted and she's such a happy baby. And she just stopped people in their tracks. This experience has changed my husband and I both. Uh, we've taken a couple steps this year in serving, and each time we're just reminded that, um, you know, if you've got this opportunity to serve and there's always fear and there's always so many unknowns, but what God's taught us is that when you push through those, He, he shows up and He makes everything work out, and, and that serving completely changes you every time. And I think in this case, it was that he changed my mind about having children. Um, just seeing Mark and I and the team that we were, that uh, those five days completely changed my mind about having kids. Um, honestly, it was just in the nick of time. I had been praying, the last weekend before actually, I had been praying. Um, on my knees that God would change my heart and my mind about having children because um, I just really, I wasn't ready and I wasn't um, under the impression I was going to ever be ready. It's just amazing that a week later we have Michaela in our house and I'm, I'm ready, I'm there. Isn't that a great story? Isn't that a great story? All right. My name is Matt Oltoff, and I'm one of the pastors in Outreach. And uh, I love Kelly's and Mark's story. I got the opportunity just to walk with them in part of their journey and just see them step out as they went to Mexico and they went to Haiti, and I was there with them. Um, they, it's just amazing to see how they have just listened to God's voice, and they have responded, and God has done this amazing thing in their life. And it's so much of who we are as a church. Um, it's just amazing to see that there are so many stories like that um, in our church where people have heard God's voice, we are ordinary people just stepping out and listening to God. Um, what's beautiful about that story that you don't know is that they have continued that relationship with the mom and the baby, and they are, and they are making a difference in their life, which is just huge. Um, if you saw the video in the beginning, what's so great about Marist Church is we're part of this church that has a 25-year history in, in being the church in our community. And in the past 25 years, $35 million dollars has come in from all of you. About 50,000 people have stepped up and said, I want to be in. I want to serve. I want to be the church in my community. Isn't that amazing? Thank you. Thank you so much for doing that and hearing God's voice and stepping out. As we look at the last 25 years about who God is, and I'm just in awe of all the things he's done, and I've got to be a part of that, and it's just been an amazing journey. He has been faithful. He has connected us with those that are broken in our community. And this is really who we are. We are about the whole church, all of us in this room, taking the whole gospel, mercy, and justice, and compassion to the whole world, to all of those around us. And it's not just giving people stuff. It's about targeting systematic issues that um, affect the whole person. And so we can truly be a church that's changing our community. But we didn't get there overnight. Um, we've learned some hard lessons that's kind of shaped who we are. And as you saw from Mark and Kelly's story, we're about relationships. We're about um, not standing at a distance and saying, um, we can give money to this problem, 
but about connecting our hearts to those that are in need. And, about, and that's who Jesus was. As he identified with the poor, he connected to the poor, and he was in relationship with those that were in need. And when we go into these relationships, it's not just going in thinking that we have all the answers. We go in with this humble spirit going, how do we learn? How do we learn together? How do we do this focusing on strengths versus weaknesses? And we have so much to learn from the poor. They have a, but there's, a, there's a joy that is there. There's a desperation that is there that, that connects us and brings us before God in an equal way, a mutual way, that we're all just broken people before God. It's about life change. As you heard us, uh, Kelly and Mark's story about, they just stepped out and, um, and God just got a hold of their heart and he shaped their heart. And, and not only we change the communities in which we serve or the schools or different things, but our lives are changed as we step out and we connect to God's heart and serving the poor and needy. And we're not just about doing something. We're about doing something that's valuable, about doing something that's impactful, about long-term relationships, about sustainability, about truly making a difference in Orange County. And it's so much fun to look at the past and look at all the things that we get to celebrate. And what's more exciting for me is to really look at the future. And I get excited as I look about the future because I believe that God is calling us to some big things. And they're huge things. And they're things that not one of us can do by ourselves, that all of Huntington Beach and Mission Viejo and Irvine get to join together and say, this is how we're going to make Orange County a different place in 10 years. It takes all of us, and it takes God showing up to do that. And these are big. These are big goals. Are you guys excited for these? Are you guys excited? Okay. These are big things. And I'll just share with you some of the, goal, the things that we believe God is calling us to. A family for every orphan in Orange County. Currently, there are 2,603 orphans in the foster care system. And the system is not designed to totally provide every single one of their needs and be the family to them. They try and they do a great job. But there are 2,603 orphans in Orange County. A fourth of them, without intervention, will end up in prison. A fifth of them will end up homeless. And so how do we join together? And some of you, could, some of you may be willing to adopt. Some of you may be willing to be a safe family like Mark and Kelly. But really, there is a role for all of us to play as you think about orphans, and that's a big problem. But some of you can lead a small group of foster kids. Some of you can be mentors. Every safe family that steps out, it takes five families to rally around them and help them with babysitting and food and just supporting them as they step out in faith and be this safe family. So there's literally a role for all of us to play. Wouldn't it be great at the end of 10 years that we could say those 2,603 kids are our kids and we were a family for them? Wouldn't that be amazing? That's true and pure religion. Our second, our second goal that we feel God is calling us to is every underprivileged high school student graduates in Santa Ana. Out of the 65 public high schools, the bottom four are all from Santa Ana. 34% of students at Century High School in Santa Ana didn't graduate this year. Now, if you compare that to Irvine, I don't know what Huntington Beach is, but if you compare that to Irvine, only 1%, actually it's 0.2% of the kids didn't graduate. I'd like to know what, what point two of a student looks like. But they didn't graduate. And that's staggering. That's staggering. It's unjust to go, how is this happening right here in Orange County where 34% of these kids aren't graduating and yet all of these kids are? And so how do we be the church as we step out? 
What do we do? According to the National Dropout Prevention Center, the number one core strategy proven to prevent high school dropouts is mentoring and tutoring these kids, providing after-school opportunities. And this is exactly what we've been doing in Santa Ana for 25 years. We have a couple community centers where we've been tutoring 150 kids after school, from elementary to high school. And what's so great is some of you have been a part of that journey, and thank you. But we can say in 2010, all the kids that are part of that program graduated high school. Isn't that amazing? Now here's the sad thing. There's about 75 kids currently on a waiting list waiting to be tutored. And again, could you imagine what Orange County could be like in 10 years if all of us, hundreds of us, stepped out and said, I will be a tutor. I will spend time with those kids. We could be in five more communities. We have, we have resources waiting that we could be in five more communities tutoring and impacting more kids. If hundreds of us would join together and just step out. Orange County would truly be a different place. The last thing we feel God is calling us to is everyone shares and no one in need. You heard the story about the Resource Center and why that's so important. is currently one in six people in Orange County um, go without food because they can't afford it. And 50% of them are kids. And if they can't afford meals, can you imagine not affording their shoes? school supplies, clothing, what are they going to do? And that's why I love the story of our resource center. How do we be the church for this community? And imagine a neighbor who's lost everything. Or imagine a single parent, and I was in that same position. Why it's emotional to me. Because I was there going, where do I go? How do I meet the needs of my kids? And so we have a place where we can the single parent, your neighbor, those that have lost their jobs, those that are in need, that we can truly just bless them and be the church for them so that we can all share so no one's in need. And it doesn't stop there. There's always people to talk to. There's always people to pray with them. There's always people to introduce them just to who Jesus was and be the gospel. And so they get to connect with that. Isn't that a legacy worth leaving, worth fighting for, of making a difference in the next 10 years? I'm not sure where you're at today. I've seen God change my heart. I've seen God shape my heart as I've been on this journey of looking what it looks like for me to step out and serve and be a part of that. But I believe God is calling us all to take a stand, to be a part of this. How are you going to respond? All right. Uh, There's times where we feel like you know, you need to give people sort of a chance to reflect and decide what they're going to do. And then I think there's times where it's important for us to respond. And we want to provide an opportunity for you to respond right now. And I know that as I do this, it's going to make some of you uncomfortable, and, and that's okay. All right? Here's what we're going to do. is uh, There's a lot of ways that we as individuals, we as a church, can step up. Uh, Matt talked about the safe families. And that is an amazing ministry. And you may say, there is no way we could adopt or be a foster, sort of a foster family right now, or adopt a, a kid. We could not do that. But, you know, for every family that does that, we figured out that we need four or five families that will partner with them and help with child care or help with driving them or mentoring or doing things like that. So even if you couldn't be the family, you could be part of the team. Uh, for others of you, mentoring a child that's in high school, or mentoring an elementary age kid is a real possibility. 
And a lot of times just spending time with the kid makes such a huge difference. Or using our resource center and saying, listen, when I have extra, I'm going to bring it. And maybe I'm going to cut back a little bit on the things that I need and I'm going to bring it. Because that is, right now, ministering to a huge amount of people that have needs. Finally, there's always, there is the giving part of it. There's the financial part of it. And Mariners is so careful not to manipulate people into giving. And we don't want to do that right now at all. In fact, you know, the offering boxes are always in the back. They don't even pass plates. Uh, we're not going to pass one today either. But I do want to say this. The Bible says that where your treasure goes, there your heart follows. And so if you're wondering, well, I don't know that my heart is fully engaged at this point. One of the ways the Bible says you want your heart to engage, then give something. Because your heart tends to follow your money. And so here's what we're going to do. is All of you were given an envelope uh, when you came in. And then on your seat, there was a piece of paper, a little card. And here's what we'd like you to do. I would like to give you right now just a chance to think about the response you want to make. And I know this is hitting you a little bit cold, so we'll give you a chance uh, to think about it and just write it down on the card. Maybe you did not come prepared to give money, and that's not possible. Uh, You're welcome to do it online if if you're not ready to do it right now. Uh, But you can pray for the ministries. Maybe you want more information about safe families or how to be involved in the resource center. Uh, Maybe you want to mentor or do something like that. Just write it down on your card. And what we're going to do is I'm going to give you a chance to do that Then I will pray, and then Ethan and and the band are going to play a song. And during that time, I'm inviting you to come up. We've got two boxes on the side of the stage. Just come up and throw your card into the box. And we're going to kind of do a, you know, let's come together and see what we can do as a church. And this could be one of the finest moments of Huntington Beach right now. So let me just give you a minute. Uh, They're going to play a little bit. Just fill out the card. And then I'll pray for you, and then the song will start, and you can come up and put something in the box. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariners Church in Huntington Beach. For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.